You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have McKeever Conwell. Uh, welcome to the Go Show. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Uh, you're an investor uh, here in Maryland. Uh, also, you're a, a trained engineer. Let's talk a little bit about becoming an engineer uh, and you know your your early life story. So my early story. So I'm originally from Baltimore uh, City. Later moved out to the county. Thank you, parents. Thank you, mom and dad. Um, and what really happened for me and how I got again in, into engineering was when I got to middle school, I had a teacher who at the time I didn't realize was a former uh, engineer. And he was really big in the robotics and engineering and maglev trains and all this and like uh, building bridges and all this other stuff. Right. And so I ended up having that teacher for all three years of middle school and I had it drilled in my head. I was going to build robots. Like, I just knew that going off, I was going to build robots. So that was the early life. It was really one particular teacher, Mr. Davis, that influenced me and, and kind of got me moving down that path. What age do you, you know, you know you want to be an engineer? Uh, I guess I'm, I was probably, I knew I wanted to be an engineer when I was like 10, right? I think the first time I thought engineering, like like the idea of mechanical things being cool was probably younger so there's a there's a japanese cartoon called robotech right and what in the very first episode what you see is these these fighter jets that are based off of the s-14 fighter plane that transform into robots and i was like yo this is the coolest thing i've ever seen like as a seven-year-old kid watching a fighter jet turn into a, a robot was like just the dopest thing in the world so that that was like the beginning of peaking but yeah when i was 10 i kind of knew like yeah i, I want to be an engineer i want to build robots and you know mr davis really kind of pressed that upon me what type of school are you in at this time in terms of the uh, the, the the racial breakdown so my elementary school my first school was a little mixed but the rest of my career was predominantly african-american i went to all black schools pretty okay, much my whole it. career and so it sounds like you're probably a geek uh at this time uh yeah. and later did you get picked on or people teased you so I got picked on a bit in middle school, but I had a core group of friends, right? And when I got to high school, it was weird. Pick on you. Let's let, let's let's stop there in middle mm -hmm. school. So pick on you, like describe, like, hey, he's a geek, Carlton. Like, what type of stuff did you get? Yeah, I got he he's a geek. Um, you know, well, I'm a large guy, right? So I got picked on about my size. Um, my pe my parents ain't have no money, so you know, I came to school one day with these uh, these shoes. From um, we got them from Macy's and they were called Nucleus. Yeah. And so like I'm walking around school with these Nucleus on my feet. Yeah. And so you know, the <laughs> moment I got to the bus stop, that was a thing. Yeah, that, that kid uh, wearing pro wings. Uh, you, you're always getting uh, picked on. I remember uh, we used to pick on uh, the brand of car that uh, each kid would would come in, and uh, s people would be telling their parents to park uh, down the street. Yep. So the kids can uh, crack about the car, but. I'm more talking about kind of geek getting uh, picked on, meaning that, you know, you're in engineering. Right. Uh, uh, you're an outlier. Uh, you're different. Right. Uh, and kind of getting picked on because of that. I mean, it, it, coming up in Baltimore in predominantly black neighborhoods, you got the label of you weren't black enough. I was told very, I was told from early on, like, yo, you know, are you you're not even black you know this isn't what black kids do you know we don't want to hang with you and and that, and, and that kind of creates a complex right because then you want to overcompensate for it yeah 
and you want to be like super black. So then what does that mean if I'm going to be as black as possible? That means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to identify with everything there is in hip hop culture because hip hop culture is the blackest thing you could be. Yeah. Right. So then you start to change your clothes. You start to change the way you talk. And I saw a lot of my friends do that and try to dumb themselves down to be, to accepted, be cool, to be cool and be accepted. Yeah. So the culture uh, from your perspective, like it was promoting being dumb. Uh, not it was like the it was optimized to go against if you wanted to really be good at engineering or you really wanted to be serious. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, being smart was not cool. So, yeah. you know. My friends were all the smart kids. Yeah. And and we all commiserated about, you know, nobody wanted to hang with us. Nobody wanted to play Pokemon at lunch with us. So uh, are you a Democrat? I am. You're a registered Democrat. I'm a registered Democrat. Okay, yeah. So uh, now in this environment, if you say that, you know, hey, there are some deep issues with black culture in terms of where we uh, assign value, mm-hmm. uh, right? But you don't hear a lot of Democrats like it's, it's it's popular to say, hey, you know, MAGA this, white folks this, Republicans this. Like we get that, and I believe in a lot of that stuff. But you don't see a lot of voices talking about, hey, there are some cultural issues that we need to address in terms of how we treat each other, how we relate uh, with each other. Meaning that white folks, uh, they're not going to inject themselves and teach us how to properly relate and value. Uh, each other and what we're interested in. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on that in terms of, uh, do you hear a lot of talk among your peers uh, who are politically active about cultural optimization, things that we can do that the government can't help us here? So it's funny. I was just on a panel last weekend and where we talked about this a lot, about the wealth in the black community here in Baltimore. And one of the things that came up was, you know, we tend to put blame on everybody else and want everybody else to help us. But we don't take the time to sit back and like, yo, there's all these other things in our community we need to work on and we need to learn the value, you know, like telling somebody, oh, you have a dad. Are you really black? Like, that's that's the craziest statement a kid could tell another kid. Like, just yeah. because you have a dad at home, that means you're not black. Like, what does that that's mean? That's what you got? It's like, you're not hood enough. <laughs> like, you're not hood enough because you yeah. got a dad at home. What yeah. Is, what kind of shit? That's Man, that's crazy. what I heard. I, I remember on a, uh, a Death Row documentary, uh, one of the executives was like, Suge's not really uh, a thug, although he grew up in Compton, mm-hmm. meaning that I have family members who, who are familiar uh, with that family and some stuff around there. And uh, the guy says uh, on this documentary, he's like, Suge's not a real thug. He had two parents in the home. <laughs> what, is, what does that even mean? Like, what does that even mean? How many people does this guy got to kill to, 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 that, to, but, to but, get your credentials? Go ahead. But you find people who are treated that way at an early age who then overcompensate and want to be extra hard just to prove, oh, I'm really a thug. Just because I got two parents on me, I'm not a thug. Yeah. Like, what What does that mean? What is that even, why, why do we have to take it to that degree, right? And I think, you know, a lot of black kids, when they're trying to find an identity, the thing you identify the most is what is portrayed in the media. And the biggest influence in the media for the black culture is, is hip-hop culture, right? So if, yeah. that's, if that's what you see and those are the lyrics you're hearing, as a youth, you're not hearing pain. Yeah, You're hearing storytelling of like, this is glorifying. I need, to, I want to do this. When really these people are talking about their pain and just trying to explain and let people know like this is the environment I'm in and it's a sick environment. But I've been able to make it out because I'm able to tell these stories. But why, for those on the left who are Mm -hmm. democrats or those who are so-called progressive why isn't cultural optimization internally a top five issue 
meaning that this is something that we can control uh, in many respects. Uh, and where for us to really move forward, yes, we need to have external things change in terms of poli- race, racist policies, uh, racist institutions. Uh, however, what can we do to optimize our culture and how we program things with each other and with our children? First of all, from, from the, the folks on the left, and we talk from the political side, they're, they're worried about policy and external things. They don't tend to worry about the internal and, and all this, the grassroots stuff, right? Yeah. That's what these nonprofits in the, in the communities are for, you know, like leaders of the beautiful struggle in Baltimore. Like, that's the kind of stuff they do. And really what, what it is is we're not promoting, I really believe this, we're not promoting the other images in our community, right? Like when I talk to my white counterparts, they can say, yeah, when I was growing up, my dad's best friend gave me an internship because your dad's best friend who he went to college with is a, is a, a lawyer or is a dentist or is a project manager at a, at a marketing firm, right? And you get exposed to all these things and you see images around you. But in our communities, especially in blue-collar communities, your, your, your parents' f- family and your network is limited typically to the people you live close to and the people they work with. They don't have networks beyond that. And so those are the only images you see. And so outside of that, the only other images you see or what you see on TV. We don't promote the people in our community that are doing just regular positive stuff. Like the guy who has a real estate business or the woman who owns several uh, assistant living homes, right? And that's why people talk a lot about mentorship in the black community because those people being mentors coming back or being big brothers, big sisters, you're giving the young people an image to see. We don't see enough of those images. Like, and, 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 and it can't be one-offs, right? Like my high school, I went to Woodlawn High. This is a school in Baltimore County. It's one of the at the time it was the, one of the three black schools in Baltimore County, right? Uh, my junior or senior year, we had an astronaut come back to the school who had graduated from Woodlawn. That should be a big deal. That is the only real positive image we saw of somebody who went to our school, and it was so far removed. We looked at like, what does that have to anything to do with us? Because none of us have the opportunity to be what he is. Yeah. But the thing that made the most impact in my school was my. Um, my sophomore year, Kevin Lyles, who also went to Woodlawn, donated a bunch of money to get us a new stadium built and then donated. You a mean bunch the uh, music executive, Kevin Lyles? The music executive, oh, Kevin Lyles, donated a money to the school to get a new stadium built and then donated a bunch of fat farm shoes. That yeah, we, we don't hear a lot about uh, that. You know, I hear sometimes uh, folks saying, hey, you know, black people, we don't help each other and uh, we don't. Uh, you know, donate and we don't do that. Man, there's so many stories. At least my personal uh, view is that there's so many stories and a lot of these stories are hidden where you do find our people helping each other. It's not like we're helping each each, each other less uh, than other folks who are similarly uh, situated. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that's the problem. Like, why don't we hear these stories? Why don't we tell these stories? Why don't we show these people? There's a bunch of them in the black community but those images aren't being seen. They're not being, there's no light being shone on those. Okay, got it. And so you graduate from uh, high school. Uh, where do you go from there? So after I graduated high school, uh, I went to Morgan State University. Uh, and I was just, it was the cheapest school for me to go to. <laughs> yeah. They offered me a scholarship, but I was like, I'm going to go. Yeah. And when I got there, I, wa- I knew I wanted to do engineering. So I showed up and I'm like, what's your major? Like, I don't know it what major I'm supposed to do. I was like, but I want to build robots. And they're like, well, go do computer science. They have a whole robotics team or whatever. It's like, cool. Yeah, I showed up. They didn't have a robotics club. The robot they had was like from the 80s and had chips falling off and things. Like I felt completely duped 
But I got to my first class, um, and it was like intro to C++. I was like, oh, this, this I could do this. This isn't hard. And then I looked up how much computer scientists made, and I was like, yep, this is my major. Because I, I specifically went to college not to learn, but to increase my economic potential. Like, you yeah. Know, I came from a family where my parents did their best for me, and they, they, they sheltered me from a lot of things, but we didn't have a lot of money. Yeah, and, and I was I but was you, aware of that fact. Although you didn't have the money, though, I would argue that uh, you you may have had something worth more than uh, money in, in terms of uh, uh, you know uh, coming up in a two parent home. Yeah, I, I would say. And before folks are like, oh, two parent home doesn't mean the person turns out good. Uh, I'm talking about in general. Uh, obviously, there's ex- there's exceptions. It, it doesn't guarantee anything, but I do believe. Uh, uh, children uh, in general uh, are going to come out better with uh, a team versus a, a single person. I agree. Now, not all parents are net positives, yeah. right? But I was blessed to have two parents who were caring and loving, and I had a, a father who was a strong man who gave me a lot of lessons along the way in life to prepare me to be a strong man. Yeah. And so I attribute I attributed a lot of things to my parents. But um, so when I got to college, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I need to make money. I'm doing a major that makes money. So computer science is where it was. And so I got to Morgan, and I realized when I got there, like, I got to be involved in every organization I possibly can because I got to build up a resume because I, I need to figure out how to start getting internships and start building this out so I can land myself a good job. Fast forward, uh, sophomore year, I go to a career fair, and I stop at a booth. And I didn't even read what the booth was for. They told me, you know, it was for it was for graduating seniors. They weren't looking for interns. I'm like, but my but my uh, resume is immaculate. So if you see my resume and don't hire me, there's a problem with your organization. I was really cocky back then. I got to one booth and the lady pulled me aside. She's like, "You're not fit. You're not a fit for what we're looking for." But I run student programs, so I want you. I want. I'm gonna take your resume and I'm gonna submit you for our student programs. Lo and behold, that lady worked for the NSA. And so my sophomore year in college, I got into a co-op at the NSA. So every other semester, I was a full-time employee. And you're, you're allowed to mention the agency? Yeah, I'm allowed. Yeah, you're allowed to, yeah, uh, it's, in it's, terms it's, of their procedures? So I'm allowed to mention the so I'm allowed to mention the agency as long as I don't mention anything beyond, like, the work I did. Or, like, I yeah, I got to be careful uh, uh, because uh, we had another guest uh, come on the show. He's also has associations with uh, – uh, intelligence agencies uh like man man you got so many people connected to intelligence agencies man is go uh funded by the cia you know <laughs> you, you're gonna you know you guys are gonna uh uh get me in trouble here so, so let me redo that so let's let's do this for edit so my my my, <laughs> my, my sophomore year of college i um you know i went to the career fair and um so basically the lady put me in for a student program for the department of defense so here I am, sophomore in college, going through the process to get a top secret security clearance to work for the Department of Defense. So, and then that got me into a program that effectively changed my life. What do you say to that conspiracy theorist in Lemert Park, L.A., who was like, man, I won't trust any brother who has a security clearance from the NSA? You just don't know. You I mean, know right there is like, hey, there's something wrong with you in terms of... Uh, uplifting our people in your consciousness what what would you say to that i would say you have no understanding of what the intelligence community does or what the department of defense does right 
when I worked for the Department of Defense, we did things that affected world change and protected the American citizens. Like, I literally worked on projects where the next day I could see the outcome of my project featured on CNN. Right? You like, were having impact. Yeah, you make real, you can make real global impact. Okay, uh, so uh, walk us through in terms of uh, the recruiter uh, uh, reaches out and what happens. So uh, they, they, they take my resume and then I get this big form in the mail. Did you have dreads back then? I, I, I just started my locks. Okay, go ahead. I just started my locks, right? right. And so uh, they sent me this big giant package that I had to fill out. I didn't even know what I was filling it out for. How Next many pages th- you're talking? I'm talking about like 85 pages. Yeah. Like they want to know every single detail of your life for yeah. the last seven years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you listen to Shabazz the Disciple? Did you listen to uh, X-Clan? No. Uh, <laughs> no I'm, just, I'm just joking, but go ahead. No, so it's like all this personal data. And then they send somebody from the FBI to do a background check on you. Uh, They go talk to like your neighbors, your friends, your family. Uh, They go talk to your boss. My boss pulled me up one day because I worked worked on the website for the the Office of Residence Life at Morgan. And my boss pulled me to the side one day. He's like, somebody from the FBI was just in here asking a whole bunch of questions about you. Is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, it's it's for a job. It's all good. (laughs) So I went through that process. Got, uh, took the polygraph and everything I needed to do, got my security clearance, and then I got in this program where they rotate you through different departments. So every other semester, you're a full-time employee with the Department of Defense working Was in different departments. Was there anything department. in your application that you were insecure about? Like, hey, maybe this is not going to go over well. Oh, drugs. Like, like you know, what type of drugs? So I, I smoked weed in high school, right? Okay. You um, were concerned about that. I was concerned because they, they asked you questions about it. I was like... I'm not lying here. I, like, like, and, and that's the other thing. When you take the polygraph and all that, it's an integrity test. You know, there are certain things you, you shouldn't have done. Like, if you've been taking some hard drugs or if you kill somebody, like, it's going to be going to be a problem. Has Kavanaugh, you think, uh, does, you think he has the clearance that you have in terms of the... I don't think so. No, you don't think so. Okay. I don't think so, no. It's not required for a, a federal judge. No. Okay. What I, um, for, for a federal judge over specific cases, they need, that, they need that kind of security clearance. But most judges aren't going to have it, right? So, like... Okay. I had the ability, and, and even then, like, even just because you have a top security clearance, there's a whole bunch of nuances, so, like, I can't just go, you can't just go see and look at any and everything. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I got the clearance, I start working, I got in this program, there's about 200, 250 students from universities all across the country, and the only majors they took were uh, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, and uh, computer science, right? And so out of the 250, 200 students, about 30 of us were black. And those 30 black individuals, black men and women, became like my core group of friends for the next stage of my life. And uh, were, they, were they actively recruiting black applicants or were you just like in a general pool? So all the black kids there, uh, oddly enough, either went to Ivy League schools or HBCUs. Okay, so, so, so they, that's where the intelligence agencies are getting their, yeah. their black folks. Yeah, you're getting from Ivy Leagues or you're getting from HBCUs. There's, there's not a lot of in-between. No. I don't okay. think I met a single person was in-between. Right. Um, but th- them being my core group of friends became a big deal for me. Um, one, because one of my friends in particular, uh, Patrick Jackson, who now lives in uh, San Francisco and is the CTO for a company called uh, Disconnect, a security company. Um, he was obsessed with being the black Mark Zuckerberg, right? And so I hate that term, but go ahead. I, I get it, right? But he was the first one who like. You're like, I want to be a black criminal. <laughs> I want to be 
a black liar. Uh, I want to be black <laughs> someone that hurt a lot of kids. I want to be. He, he was thinking about it from a tech standpoint, right? Yeah. Making money. But um, he was the first person I knew who started a website to start making money. He created a website called Buku for students at, at Howard to uh, basically uh, sell their, their stuff to each other, right? Uh, and then he went on to build apps and other things. And so he got the rest of our group to start talking about those things. And we started like having regular meetings where we would meet up at Chipotle and just talk about things and technology and things we should try out and run through ideas. And like that helped inform a core group of my friends because six of us out of that group went on to start startups later on. And so that was a big impactful thing. The other impactful thing that happened as I went through that program, one, um, my father passed away uh, right after I got into the program. And so that got that made things a little weird. But then the first... Your parents were married when he passed away? Yeah, so my parents met when they were in high school and they stayed together until the day my father passed away. Okay, nice. So, um, but I was working on my first job, my first rotation, and I was doing this work and I was looking next to my, uh, me and my coworker, and I'm helping my coworker with something, right? And we're writing yeah. computer code. And I had a moment where I stopped and I looked at him, I thought to myself, you make 85000 a year. And I make the equivalent right now of 35000 just because I'm in the student program. But me and you are doing the exact same work. The only difference is I'm in school and you're not. In that moment, school died for me. Like school died in my head in that moment. Like I knew I wasn't going to finish college. <laughs> um, and so I was in college for another year after that. And then I, I remember. What, uh, what were you at the time, a sophomore? A sophomore. You were a sophomore. So then my junior year, I'll never forget, I was hanging around with my friends. I'm like, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to drop out. And I remember all my friends looking at me like I was crazy. Like, why would you drop out? You know, we in college, we trying to get our degrees and everything. And, and mind you, I had a 3.8 GPA. I was on the path to get a master's. Like, I knew what my plan was. Yeah. But I was like, I only did this so I could make six figures. I see a path to make six figures without this, so I'm, I'm going to go get that. You're smart enough. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like. Yeah. And so... um. I'll never forget, I put my resume on Monster, and I started getting these calls from recruiters. And so this one company interviewed me twice. In my second interview, they, they wanted me to do some work that I had never done before. Yeah. And the guy basically like, so do you want the job? I was like, I've never done this work before. He's like, well, you have a clearance, right? Like, yeah. He's like, all right, do you want the job? I'm like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and next thing I know. Can you, can you get the clearance that you had without a sponsor, meaning that, meaning that I want to go to I want to apply to a lot of kind of uh, government related uh, opportunities uh, or jobs. Can I start with a security clearance without having a sponsor? Can I nah. just go get it? No, there's no way you can you, just you go need get a this. sponsor. You need a sponsor. Once you have a sponsor, then it just opens up yeah. kind of a lot of opportunities. Once you have a sponsor, you can kind of get through. And the sponsor is probably going to be a, a government contracting firm or a government agency. Those are the only two ways you're going to get these kind of clearances. So really, you want to go through the interview process with just about anybody just to get the clearance and then now open up to you know oh yeah a, a lot of opportunities because if you have a security, so you're not, you don't really need to be picky kind of getting in the game no you don't need you to know? be picky at all you, as long as you get if you get a top secret security clearance man you good you 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 are good you are never without a job there is all there will always be positions for you especially in the dc maryland virginia area like there is work always okay got it and so um i got a job at Northrop grumman making more money than my parents ever made in their careers. And yeah. I was 20 at the time. Wow. By the time I was 23, I moved on to another, or I, moved, I switched to uh, another company. I had a six-figure job, a four-story townhome, and three cars. Government 
related entities, contractors hooking you up. Yeah, I was 23 and I was living yeah. the life. And I looked yeah. around and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> and I was like, so what do I do next? And yeah. everybody looked at me like, oh, go start a family. Well, I'm not ready for that. So what else? Do this for the next 30, 40 years of your life and retire. I'm like, that it? There's nothing else? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is the end of the road? <laughs> and uh, that was shocking to me because, you know, I wanted more. And so that's around the time I started playing around with the idea of, of starting a business and trying to figure out, like, how could I create a, a, a tech company? I, I didn't even think of it as, that t- as a tech company at that time. I didn't know what a starter was. It's like, how do I build a website that makes money for me while I sleep? That was, like, yeah. the big thing. And so that, that was, like, the beginning of me kind of moving on to uh, the, the entrepreneurial phase of my life. Okay, got it. And let's talk about that, the entrepreneurial uh, phase. Yeah, so um, it was interesting. So a good friend of mine is Michael Washington, who now, I guess, is the CTO of a company out in the Valley called Solzy, uh, came to me and said, you know, I'm working on this idea with another um, with another good friend of mine, Sam Henry. So Sam and Mike met through me, and they were, they said they were going to start a company together. I was like, well, you're not going to start the company without me. Yeah. Anyhow, this is going to work. <laughs> so I kind of injected myself into the, into the business, and the three of us started building this website together. Uh, called nobaggift.com. It was a, it was a registry site where people could put up items they wanted for their birthday or Christmas, and people would crowdfund the money for individual items. Right? Um, it was it was a novel idea. It was something interesting, and so we started building on it. And we spent about a year and a half building out this this platform, and it had all this tech underneath. But the three of us were just developers, so we would go to work, and then in the evenings we would code, and we would do that every night. And then we got to a point where we realized, like, it's been like a year and a half. We don't have any customers. We don't know what we're doing. It's like, so what do we do next? Well, we need to do some marketing. We ain't got no money for marketing. So where do we get money? Well, we, we need to get some investors. Okay, what are investors and where do we find them? I don't know. We need to figure it out. So it's like this whole big thing of like, okay, now we need to go get investors. We need to figure it out. How do we do that? We had no clue. And so next thing I know, I started getting invited to a few events. And then I started noticing, oh, Going to events and doing this thing called networking is how you start to get into these circles. And, how and did you, you feel like you had the personality to kind of, you know, hey, I can really get out there and how you're doing? And I could, you know, possibly uh, turn into a, a Stanley from Friday. Um, are, are you that were you that guy then or did you have to kind of uh, get comfortable over time? I was that guy then. Okay. I didn't realize it, but I was that guy then. And, and what happened was. I started going to a lot of events and my two co-founders were like, you just do that. Just do the networking and work on the business stuff. We'll do the coding. Cause you're, you like talking to people we don't. Yeah. And so I was like, all right. So I got thrown into this position of being a CEO without even knowing what I was doing. And um, I started meeting some good people and good things started happening around. And the more I was out, more opportunities were coming. So I was like, okay, this, this networking thing really has legs. And, um, and then next thing, so then we go from 2010 when we started the company to 2012, where everything kind of exploded for us. Uh, we kind of broke into the Baltimore tech scene. Uh, we found our way into um, the, the Baltimore tech Facebook group where we started, you know, drawing people's attention. Uh, I did it. I put up a post on Facebook one day like, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to get to investors. And people keep telling me I need to learn how to pitch. But yeah. the only two ways, the only two times you pitch are either in front of investors or in competitions. Neither one of those scenarios is okay to fail. So I got a projector. Does anybody want to come to my house with some pizza and beer and we can practice pitching, right? And it became this huge thing that turned into an actual event. Um, there was a guy who offered us some space in Hunt Valley 
where we set it up. We had six people pitch, and we had like 30 advisors in the room to critique our pitches. And it became such a thing that the Baltimore Sun actually wrote an article on it about how putting an ask on the Internet turned into a real-life event. And so that started getting people pee like, who is this guy? And a funny thing about that, you know, I want to talk about some racial stuff. My best friend, Devin Partlow, was also starting a business. He was part of that group who worked with me at, with the Department of Defense. And so he was starting a business, too, at the same time. And he also he was a tall dude with locks. I'm a big dude with locks. Um, when they took the photo for that event, they took the picture of him. Yeah. <laughs> so in the Baltimore Sun, the article's referencing me, but there's a big picture of him. Yeah. And every time me and him would go to events, everybody just assumed that we were working together. It's like, oh, it's the two black guys. They must be doing this together. Yeah. It's like, no, we actually have two separate companies. We just happen to know each other. Um, which was funny. And that was, that was something that came up over and over. But then in 2012, we got into the first accelerator in the state of Maryland, Accelerate Baltimore. Um, me and Devin both got into that accelerator, which was amazing. We found that out while we were at Monte Crawl. <laughs> Um, that was that was a, that was a cool time. So uh, my company got our first bit of money from that. We got twenty five thousand for that, and we got some advisors to start working through some things. And then two months after that, and then like a month after that program ended, we went out to San Francisco to to go out to check out the Valley and be part of the New Me Accelerator for their third class with Angela Benton. With, uh, with yeah. Angela Benton, and so um, I was out there. We went through that. Um, you're, we were in a a four-bedroom apartment. <clears throat> it was eight founders living in a four-bedroom apartment, living on IKEA bunk beds. You know. And CNN covered. Or you were you in the, the group? CNN was in the first class. In the first one. Okay, I was two classes it. after that. Got. It. And so you know, we were just out there grinding, grinding hard, and everywhere we went, it was weird because at the time we were doing this gifting idea, there were a lot of people doing the gifting idea. I'll never forget. We were having a meeting with an investor while we were in New Me, and he came up to us. He's like, "Hey, you know." For some reason, that idea is uncommonly popular these days. <laughs> so yeah. you expect an investor to say they've heard of your idea before and yeah. know some competitors? Yeah. But this here, uncommonly popular, it's like, okay. The market had already kind of passed you guys by. It was, yeah, it was saturated before you even get off the ground. It's completely saturated. You know, Facebook had already bought our biggest competitor, Gift Tiki, at the time. And like, it was like, okay, we need to differentiate ourselves and do something different. And so we figured out a way for people to gift each other apps out of the, uh, out of the, uh, the iTunes store. And that was cool. And then the way it would deliver it was it would be in the form of a link. So I could send you a text message with a link, and you click on it, and the app would just start downloading on your phone. It was that simple. Yeah. And we started showing it to people, and people were giving us these crazy reactions, like, whoa, I've never seen that before. And it was like, okay. Man, the first thing I'm thinking about, man, this is maybe some spam. This is some malware. <laughs> <laughs> Not it's like you're sending me apps via text, and it automatically downloads on my phone. They were prepaid yeah. for. It was all yeah. paid for stuff. And so... um we realized there was something there with that. And so we pivoted our company to just doing that. So you could prepay for anything out of the iTunes store and deliver in the form of a link. So you can send it on Facebook, you can do it on Twitter, you can do it on text, like, you know, some cool stuff. So give me an example. Like, hey, it's a game that I can play. I got to pay for, but I'm going to buy it and gift it to someone. They get the game for free. So there, yeah, so the like. App. Yeah, so like uh, one of the marketing firms we were talking to, they were kicking this idea around because they partnered with an airline. They were like, yeah, so when people go on Twitter and complain about um, their flight being delayed, we can send them a tweet and be like, click this link to download a free movie or a free app while you wait. Yeah. And, and our technology would, would run that. Um, or we did, a, we did a thing for Apple where, uh, not Apple, for, um, for uh, Nickelodeon, where they had a show that was coming out and they did a competition 
but they were giving out a bunch of digital copies of the um, the soundtrack. So they used our platform to to buy all the copies of the soundtrack in one go and to distribute them all out at once. And it automated the whole process, right? So so it was a lot of unique things you could do. So we started getting corporate uh, partners and corporate customers. But the, the, the hard thing was for our first company, we were, we were a business to consumer company. So we sold directly to consumers. And so we spent a lot of time trying to learn how to sell directly to consumers. And we were just starting to figure that out. When we pivoted, we were now a business to business um, company where we were selling the businesses, where we had to learn what it was like to sell the businesses and deal with long sales cycles or work with large corporations who pay you whenever they feel like paying you. Yeah. Like, like when you work with Viacom, you get your check whenever Viacom wants to give you your check, not, not when you finish the work. Um, and so that, and that was a struggle. And along the way, me and my co-founders were just now starting to learn what it meant to have a startup. We were learning about lean startup. We were learning what it meant to follow your passion and build something around your passion and start with why. Um, and fatigue was starting to set in, you know, we had been, we had been going at it almost four years at that point. And, you know, we were starting to get some momentum, but it wasn't moving as fast as we wanted. And, and we weren't building something that we really truly loved. We just built something that was really cool. And so um, that started taking a toll on the team. So that, and luckily for us, though, through that process, we had a, a Fortune 100 company reach out to us like, hey, we really like what your guys are working on. We want to talk more. And so we were able to, to navigate that process and actually sell the technology off to a Fortune 100 company, which was a win. Yeah. And it was good for me and my co-founders because we needed that break. Yeah. You, you, in terms of you guys are just burnt out. Uh, and you guys end up selling the intellectual property. Yeah, man. I mean, people don't understand some of the stories, some of the, the, the hardships you go through as an entrepreneur, yeah. man. The highs Stressful. and the low are crazy. Man, so when we've, and you got to remember, when I started our first company, I had a six-figure job, a four-story townhome, and three cars. By the time we sold the technology off, I had a car. Yeah. You, like, you decided, hey, I want to take a lot of risk. I took too much risk. Yeah. Um, and, and, and You're was, like, man, let me get back into that government contractor gig. I thought about it a few times, right? Like, I was like, hey, I might have to go back. Um, but, I, I mean, I could, like, and, and then also, you know, when I was in the Valley, I ended up going back to be the entrepreneur in residence for the next class in New Me Accelerator. So I ended up spending close to nine months in San Francisco. And we weren't making any real money. We had very little dollars in, in the bank. And I remember, so Tristan Walker, you know Tristan. Yeah. He was an entrepreneur in residence at Andreessen Horowitz at the time. I met him at an event, and we set up a meeting, right? So I catch the train. I catch um, the light rail to the train down to Palo Alto, and now I got to get from where the train station is to Andreessen's office. I don't have any more money on me. So I get in the cab, and right before when we get about a quarter mile away from the office, and I told the cab to pull over. I was feeling sick. He pulled over. I took off running. Oh man, you right. <laughs> and I showed up. I showed up thirty minutes early for the meeting. You know, sweating, sweat through my shirt, top, everything. Top security clearance, bro. And you, and you cheating that cab driver out of his money. I had to meet with somebody. Money. I had to meet with somebody. And Dreesen Horowitz. I had to make it happen. Yeah. I had to meet with Tristan. I left the meeting. I still ain't have no money, but I had my ticket for the train. I had to walk back to the train. It was about a four-mile walk back to the train station. Yeah. Just because I would have walked to their office, but yeah. I didn't want to be late. So, yeah. you know, I had to do what I had to do. Yeah. And then that night, I need dinner because 
I yeah. have no money. Yeah. Like, those are the kind of things you do. But when you out there hustling, you're trying to get it. Yeah. You do what you got to do. That's why now that I'm on the investment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You gotta run. Yeah. That's why it was funny yeah. for me yeah. when I talk to entrepreneurs now. Now I'm on the investment side, and they start giving me all these excuses about things they can't do. I'm just looking at them like, okay. Yeah. So. So how did that meeting go, and was it worth it? Um. Looking it, back, was it was it worth it to rob that cab driver out of his hard-earned money? It wasn't worth it he to rob. Buy, he was gonna buy his wife and kids some dinner that night, but you had to make your meeting. It wasn't worth it to rob that cab driver because he works hard for his money, and I feel yeah. bad for that to this day. Yeah. But, yeah, it was worth it for me to get there for that meeting. Okay, got Because you. if nothing else, that establishes consistency. Yeah. Like, when, when people see me, they know I'm going to show up, and I'm going to show up early. So that, that, yeah. I had to do that. You went for it. Uh, <laughs> all right, so uh, you're an investor now, yeah. uh, and you're, you're, you're funding uh, startups uh, in Maryland. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so – I had a second startup. That one didn't work. Um, I kind of had to figure out what I was going to do with my time, and I started working for this um, this marketing firm in Baltimore. It was, I hated the job. It was soul-crushing, but it made good money, and it was easy. I looked up one day, and the week Philando Castile got shot in his car, my marketing firm got a contract with the National Rifle Association. That Friday, when they signed the contract, after they announced the signing, I gave them my letter of resignation because I couldn't work there anymore. Why? I couldn't work for an organization that supported the NRA, the National Rifle to, Association. Yeah, to that point, when you're working with NSA, possibly CIA, when folks are working for these organizations, are there uh, contractors working for the organization? Did you personally see anything where you're like, hey, I don't know if I can get with this. I don't know, you know, this you know, uh, whatever technology or whatever, it's being weaponized in a way that doesn't fit uh, with my value system. Never. You never saw anything like that? Never. Okay, got it. Never. And, you know, I had a lot of friends who worked there, and I saw work that happened in a bunch of different offices. I personally never saw anything like that. It didn't come across your desk. Not But if me. something did, do you feel like back then you would have been strong enough to say, uh... Uh, I can't do this. And, and, and let me give you the context. So, mm -hmm. As you know, right now, uh, there's been protests uh, in Silicon Valley at Google, at Microsoft, at Salesforce, where employee, employees are feeling bolder uh, now and where they're challenging their companies and saying, hey, we're not with building this technology for ICE or we're not with you working with the Chinese government to filter information. And so there's a lot, of, uh, a lot more political activity within the employee uh, bases of these, of these uh, large uh, companies? I don't know if I would have been strong enough to do it then because I was, I was a really young man. You know, I had recently lost my father. I was, I was trying to find my way in life. And if I was presented with that, I don't know how I would have handled it. Yeah. But you fast forward to when I did what I did in my market firm, I was 30. You know, I, I, I knew who I was. I knew what I was about, and I knew I couldn't do that, Right. And, and it, it compounded that with the same week Philando Castillo got shot. And NRA didn't say anything about it. Like, I'm like, yeah, I can't, I can't do this. And so the, the very next week, I saw an email from the company I work at now, Tedco, the Maryland Technology Development Corporation. They were looking to hire a fund manager. Now, I don't have a, a finance background, but I know tech. And I know technologies in Baltimore. And you and know Maryland. it from an entrepreneur's side. 
you know, you've tried to raise capital. You've, you've gone through the process. I've gone through the yeah. whole process. And I know a lot of people in, in the community. And so I reached out to somebody I knew who worked. I was like, hey, you think this be worth it for me? And he's like, give it a shot. And so I applied. I went through four months of, of, of interviews, and they came back to me, sat me down. He's like, look, you don't have the, um, the experience for the position that you apply for, but we're creating this new position, and we want you to take it. Okay, nice. And so they basically created a position for me to count me come in and help work with their helped me uh, work with their seed investment team. And so when I got there, I started working with their seed investment team. And that was that was great. I got to see all the early stage companies coming in because the thing about Tedco is we have about nine different funding programs. We get about $20 million from the state of Maryland every year. You know, the and seed- Are you investing out of like a pension fund? No, so we're, uh, we actually get money. So the uh, Tedco is called uh, um, an instrumentality of the state. So we are part of the state. So within the legislative budget, we just get $20 million every year out of the legislative budget. Okay, got it. Um, there's no fund or anything. It's just uh, yeah. budgeted money. And um, and for the seed fund, uh, back when I was on the team, we did anywhere from 30 to 40 deals just out of that one funding program every year. And what's the size of the deal? $100,000 checks. Okay, nice. So, you know, $100,000 And they got to be based in Maryland. Yeah, so your principal, because these are taxpayer dollars. Yeah. So your principal place of business has to be the state of Maryland, right? And um, we saw, I saw a lot of companies. And like, I, I, I interacted with a lot of companies. And that was fun. But then Tedco had this issue that they did some internal, um, they had a third party come in and do some internal research, and they found out they weren't investing enough African-American-led startups. But they saw when African-American-led startups apply for funding, they got funded at the same rate as everybody else, just not enough were applying. So it was like, okay. It's an outreach issue. So it, 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 the question was, was it an outreach issue? So Tedco did what we always tell the entrepreneurs to do, go talk to your customers. So they set up listening sessions across the state, um, one at Morgan State University, one in Coppin State, I'm not Coppin, uh, Bowie State University, where they brought the community out. And to Tedco's credit, they just listened. They let the people say how they felt. And Tedco got called a lot of things. Um, but they listened and three things came out of it. They, they said, you don't look like us, you don't market to us, and we don't have access to early stage capital to even compete for your seed fund. And so Tedco was very intentional about, saw, about addressing all of those things. Um, and then... When it came to the funding, uh, I got the privilege to head up a program that was called the Minority Business Pre-Seed Fund, which was a partnership between Tedco and Harbor Banks Community Development Corporation. Harbor Banks, a black-owned bank out of Baltimore, to give 10 African-American-led startups $40,000 at the earliest stage of funding to help them compete for seed funding. And we made 10 investments out of that, and that was amazing. Okay, nice. That was amazing. And uh, these are all black? All black-led startups. Okay, nice. All black-led startups based here in Maryland. And then um, this year, we've uh, revamped the program. It's now called the Builder Fund. And uh, we've, we've, we've broadened it out. It's not just for African-American-led startups. It's now for minority and women-led startups, which I think is something we, we need to do anyway because we, we were missing a lot of entrepreneurs along the way. Um, where we're going now going to give them $50,000 in funding. Uh, we're going to give them some more intentional programming for 12 weeks. But then we're also giving them access to a C-suite of executives. So what we saw was... All these early stage companies lacked teams. Very few of them had teams, right? Yeah. And almost none of them had any experience. So we said, okay, we'll hire a group of executives on a part-time basis and give you access to them. So we don't want you to have mentors or advisors. We want people to help you actually execute. And so we have six of folks. We have CEOs, COOs, CMOs, CFOs, and CIOs. That each company has a bucket of hours they can draw from these people as, over a six-month period to get work done. 
So if you need to work on a new marketing campaign, tell the CMO you need eight hours this week to go work on something. You know, if you're going to have a sales call, hit one of the CEOs up and say, hey, I want you on the sales call with me. I want you to come to this meeting with me. Actually help you do the work. Um, and I think that's... I think that's going to be really impactful for the companies we have. We have five companies we just recently selected. They're in their fourth week of the program now, and I'm uh, proud of. For our audience, is there an opportunity for uh, uh, entrepreneurs to move to Maryland and tap money? What are the requirements if someone was willing to come here and set up shop in Maryland? Oh, yeah. So anybody can come to Maryland. The thing is, before we can close on the funding, you have to have a physical location here. More than 50% of your full-time employees have to live or work in the state of Maryland, and your executive decision should be made in the state of Maryland, right? And what, Those are three but things. But do you need seasoning on these things? So, for example, like how long do I need to uh, live in Maryland to, to tap the fund? As long as you're living in Maryland at the time that we sign the deal, you're good. Oh, okay, got like it. When, when, like when we write the check for you, the address on the check better be a Maryland state address. And, and for our audience, uh, how do they get more information uh, about this program? To get more information, you can go to uh, tedco.md and um, go under programs and go to Builder Fund, and you'll see all the information. You'll see that uh, myself and Angela Singleton, our information is there. We both run the program together. Uh, reach out to us or contact us. Uh, if you want to contact me, it's mconwell at tedco.md. Email me, and I'll tell you all you need to know about the program. So uh, let's change gears uh, here. Uh, let's talk about Elon Musk mm -hmm. and, and, and recently – he uh, uh, settled with the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission, and this is involving him tweeting uh, that he had a, uh, a private deal uh, to take Tesla private at $420 a share. Uh, $420 is a magic number. When he did it, I, instantly I knew that this, this seemed like he was getting psychologically tangled up into beef with short sellers betting against his stock. It was suspicious. I, you know, that's how I read it right away. But it turns out, he committed fraud. Uh, you cannot go out there, including private market investors, and lie. Uh, essentially, when people are relying on your communications to invest in both ways, uh, long and short uh, in, 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 in this case. So uh, Elon Musk is out there lying about his stock, lying about his business, and he gets off the hook. They say that, hey, you pay a little fine, $20 million, that's nothing to him. Uh, it's like buying a, a pack of Skittles uh, right. for a lot of us. Uh, but he gets off the hook. He can stay CEO, yep. pay the little fine. Yep. And what we're seeing, of course, with the financial crisis in 2008 with Lehman Brothers and a lot of the banks and the mortgages, uh, we've seen this over and over again. And you can see the promiscuous criminality in the Trump organization where they've been writing dirty and committing fraud for decades that a lot of these white-collar crooks are committing crime, but they're not doing any time. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? It's, it's, it really comes down to the way we, we think about crime, right? When you think about crime, we think about who's impacted. And so for a lot of white-collar crime, it's hard to quantify who's impacted. You don't see it as opposed to somebody get mobbed on the street. You saw somebody get their stuff taken or get, you know, beat up, get beat up and, ran, and you know, somebody ran off. The, the emotional connection is different there. The other thing is people with white-collar crime, these are people with money. People with money are people who have connections. These are people who are... Connections inside the SEC. and Connections all over. Yeah, but, but a, lot of, a lot of these SEC officials, 
they're coming from the banks in Wall Street. And so, as you mentioned, that these people are well connected. And when Elon Musk recently, he's arguing that short sellers are bad and they do this. But short sellers, they have spotted a lot of uh, accounting uh, fraud. And when the SEC is compromised because of the connections with Goldman Sachs and bankers and hedge fund managers where there's so much uh, uh, conflict of interest, the short sellers can come in and and give an objective view that, hey, this stuff is shady. This stuff is most likely fraud. And, of course, if they see that after their due diligence and research, they'll bet against the stock. Right. I mean – Here's the thing, right? At the end of the day, people are people, right? So just like where I come from, everybody wants to have a hookup with the cable guy so they can get free cable, you know, make that their friend. Same thing happens in these other, in these big industries. Everybody's looking for that friend to give them a, who has a hookup to make sure they get off whenever they have a, they make a mistake or whenever they commit a crime or commit fraud. Because we, the, we, us, the regular people, don't see that stuff day in and day out. A lot of people don't even understand what some of those terms even mean. Right. We just see dollars happening. Right. The people who are deeply entrenched in those communities, they care. The shorters, they care about that stuff, but they don't have the power to, to make a, to make the change for the most powerful people in these industries. Right. Yeah. So every, everybody's got connections. Everybody's got hookups here or there. And how you use them is is the power. Right. Yeah. Elon's must ultimate power is the power of his network. You're uh, at least I've seen uh, quite a few black folks. uh uh, they're in love with Elon Musk in terms of, uh, you know, he, he's obviously brilliant, uh, super successful. Uh, they're in love with his accomplishment. Uh, and so because they're in love with the accomplishment, they will defend white criminality, white billionaire getting off the hook. Is there any inconsistency with, you, you know, you see uh, uh, black folks defending Elon Musk and then at the same time, these are the same people like, man, we need criminal justice reform, man. We need criminal justice reform. But in, 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 in not just Elon Musk, with Trump and other folks, I've seen it. There's this like uh, 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 inclination to defend the big criminal. Well, that's also because you, you, the language you just, you just shared is coded language, right? So we're talking about white collar crime. It's white collar. It's not that big of a deal. Even to us, meaning yeah. that we've been conditioned Even. where when you commit the crime, you guys go to you know prison and you're doing hard time and you're writing a pookie and you know you're trying yep. to put something on the books. You see the pain in your community, but when you see the billionaires commit crime, a thousand, a million times the level of crime yeah. that poor folks are doing. You're conditioned to be soft on that crime. You're very conditioned to be soft on that crime. Then when you talk about justice reform, let's be clear about that. Justice reform means how do we control black communities where we see like there's all this crime happening. Because when you think about communities that are filled with crime, you don't see poor communities. You think black communities, right? This is coded language. This is language that was used purposely to target black folks. Are you paying any attention to Kanye West, who recently had a speech uh, to students where he said, leave Elon Musk alone. And so, of course, everybody's on the bandwagon now of Kim Kardashian-flavored criminal justice reform. So him and uh, Kanye and Kardashian are supposedly the now champions of criminal justice reform uh, in front of the masses of black people who've been working uh, on this issue. But now he says, hey, leave him alone. Let Elon Musk off the hook, although he's admitting to fraud involving billions of dollars. 
I worry for our generations and future generations because why is Kanye's opinion about any of this stuff even matters? Like, first of all, I want somebody to give Kanye a hug. Kanye's going through some stuff. You need. I hope Kanye's going to be okay, but he's okay, going through some stuff. But, but the thing is about our generation, when you look at, if you look over a timeline of history, right, and you start to talk about the leaders in the black community, up until the time where athletes and entertainers started making real money, the leaders of the black community were the intellectuals, the people who really studied and looked into these things and came with real arguments and had pushback on policy and things like that. And then there's this shift, right? Athletes start making real money. Entertainers start making a lot of money. Black athletes and black entertainers start making a lot of money. So now they became the most noted black people in the community. And so now those are the people we go to for advice and for help. Why? Because those are the people we hold up in high regard. There was this transition that happened. We went from these black intellectuals who were really trying to put forth what could help the communities or what they thought could help the communities and have thoughtful debate to these athletes who maybe aren't as well-learned in certain topics now being the people we look to for advice. And this trend is only continuing with the, with the advent of social media. Could they have such a large platform? What LeBron James says about the black community will spread and have more impact than what Cornell, Cornell West would say today. Now, that's not, that's, not, that's not me advocating for Cornell West, but just think about that, right? You have this learned black man who spent his entire life looking about and learning about black cultures and black communities and how they're affected versus an amazing basketball player. And if both of them put it out a tweet today, the tweet from LeBron would be seen by more people and be talked about by more people and be studying at a Harvard class before Cornell West's would. So the solution is for me not to mention it. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> I'm part of the problem. Keep it real. I wouldn't say you're part of the problem. But you would prefer not to hear or not even acknowledge what some Negroes are saying, whether they're sick or not. Yeah, I, I mean, we don't, we don't need... I don't want to hear what Kanye West has to say, right? I want to hear what the folks who are on, who are affecting policy, yeah, and, and who are working through the folks these really in the game, right? I don't want you don't want also don't want to hear what Kim Kardashian has to say about Not criminal justice reform. That's the craziest thing. Kim okay. Kardashian got what somebody are, out of jail. What kind of? <laughs> okay, so let's let's say you've been in jail. You're, you've been wrongly convicted for twenty years. Okay, so. Kim Kardashian, uh, who's known Trump, the Trump family, where she's been connected to Trump before he was elected. So her wealthy family, they are able to get to Trump. The people working on our behalf in terms of criminal justice reform can't get to these levels, but this white woman can. Okay, so she's able to get to Trump. And Trump is I believe this is all part of a PR scheme related Uh to the Mueller Mueller investigation. Uh, but she gets to Trump and uh, she gets the sister out of out of prison. Now, if you were in prison for, let's say, 20 years and the, this is the option. Trump has a PR scheme where he can use Kim Kardashian uh, as part of uh, a pardon strategy where I'm going to soften the people up for mass pardon. So help get all my criminals off the hook. I'm going to see how I'm going to use some black folks where they can get on board and start, I'm going to start pardoning people because I believe there's going to be a mass pardoning. Uh, 
uh, where he's going to try to trick people into getting on board uh, where, hey, let's fix the system. Uh, and the pardons that I give out here, look at all these other uh, uh, innocent people getting out, too. And let's just put it all in the same box. Let's mix it up. So I believe Kim Kardashian and Kanye are part of this uh, wicked strategy to trick people. Okay. But if you're in jail for 25 years and the option is you go with Kim Kardashian and Trump's MAGA partnering strategy to deceive uh, the people with technology where you start handing out partners because it's part of a bigger scheme to get white, white criminals off the hook. You want to mix it up. If you accept the pardon from Trump and Kim Kardashian, the white woman gets to be the champion of criminal justice reform. She gets to step in front of the bus and be the hero. Do you stay in jail and not accept it and possibly die in jail? Or do you take the Kim Kardashian flavored criminal justice reform and part of the, you become part of the conspiracy between Kim Kardashian and Donald Trump? That's the question from somebody who ain't been in jail. I just been nice and central, and central booking before. That's bad enough. You tell me I've been in jail for 25 years, I can get out. Self-preservation, baby. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying. I'm going to be honest about it. Like, I might feel some You're type taking of that part. You're taking that part. No, I can see some people. I can I'm, see some principle. I can see some people on principle. But, like, uh, I mean, there if, are probably some my, people. If my part is going to come, it can't be a part of this conspiracy. It can't be part of a... MAGA, Kardashian, evil and wicked conspiracy. I take a strong I've already person. been in there 25 years. Right. I mean, I, there probably are people who would, and that take a strong person to do that, right? And you have to respect that. But if somebody's like, hey, if I don't agree with this. Even if this, it's part of a big conspiracy. If this got me out and this gets me in, I'm a roll with it, right? You got to opt in. But, but uh, then, yeah. you know, that's, that's just me, right? Yeah. All right. I want to thank uh, McKeever for uh, coming on the show. Uh, you're starting your own podcast. Can you uh, talk about that? Yeah, so I'm the newest member of the Get Found, Get Funded Network. Uh, you can find us at getfoundgetfunded.com. And I'm, I'm going to be starting a podcast where I'll be talking to athletes and celebrities about entrepreneurship and their investing. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamarlin Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.